Hello and welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. My name's Darren and I'm here with Faith. Hi. Pastor Faith. And we will get to the sermon in just a little bit, but we wanted to make some time and space to talk about something special that we've been having on Sundays. And it's a new song that Pastor Faith, you and your husband, Josh, wrote, and we've shared it with our community. Tell us a little bit about it. What's the name of it? Yeah. And where did it come from? Yeah, so it's called We Need You. Um, and I, I'm going to root this in 1 Corinthians 2 when Paul says, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Um, the, the first thing that was written for this song was the beginning of that bridge section that says, We don't need better plans. We don't need clever thoughts. We need your Spirit, O oh God. We don't want the wisdom of man. We want we want a display of God's power, which is really what the world needs. They don't need to see a show, or even in the area of worship, they don't need to hear good music. We need to see a display of the power of God. So it came from that heart cry. And then the beginning of the song kind of sets up this space where we invite Holy Spirit, we open our hearts, we clear out all the distractions, the things that get in the way and then just simply cry out for more of Him. And it's this this longing to be a, a space where the Spirit would rest mm-hmm. as a community. Yeah, I love that. That's such a the heart and core value of Garden Church. Exactly. Knowing that the Spirit is present, like He's welcome to the party and we get to celebrate. And I so appreciate the beauty and creativity that you've been cultivating, not only with worship, but just something that we can invite the rest of our community into. And, and it's so cool when, when uh, in the recording of this song, it's the first time that we shared it. And it's like people have been singing it for weeks. <laughs> and it was just such a cool thing to experience. And so we're so happy for those of you that have experienced that with us on a Sunday morning. And we want to see just more original songs being birthed from this place um, that you're talking about, just being saturated in the Holy Spirit. So we are welcoming you to stick around after the sermon where you can hear a live recording of the song, We Need You, and I hope it blesses your heart. Garden Church Podcast. We live in what is called a post-Christian culture. Before I continue, I just need to say this, because I think so many of you think I might be original in any thought. I'm not original in any thought. I just need a big, broad disclaimer for everything I teach. Um, most of my sermons are taken from other smarter people um, or borrowed and used. And, and I think everyone that's a good preacher does this, but this particular sermon is taken from two friends, my friend John Tyson and my friend John Mark Comer. So if you think any of this has anything to do with me, it does not, um, except that I have friends who I take their sermons because I ask them for it and they bless me with it. So that's, there you go, my disclaimer. So if you're listening to our podcast or if you're watching on YouTube, watch their stuff. They're brilliant. So there you go. So we live in what is called a post-Christian culture. And there have been three phases of culture in the West. Pre-Christian, think Celtic Britain with child sacrifices before the gospel arrived. Christian or Christianized, which is like think of America in the 1950s, right? And what we have now is post-Christian. 
Christian, which is a reaction against Christianity. Our culture is simply reacting to Christianity, which is why everyone is more open to Buddhism, uh, yoga, mindfulness, meditation, and kombucha than they are God. Would you agree? Rosaria Butterfield, who wrote, wrote this book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, I highly recommend this book. She says this, let's face it. We have become unwelcome guests in this post-Christian world. Our children ride their scooters in neighborhoods where conservative Christianity is dismissed or denounced as irrelevant, irrational, discriminatory, and dangerous. Many Christians genuinely do not know what to say to their unbelieving neighbors. The language and the logic have changed almost overnight. Miroslav Volf suggests that our entire culture has become built upon the persistent practice of exclusion. This persistence means that our instincts are continually sharpened to push others to the margins of our minds, hearts, and lives. Rather than being seen as a gift, others are seen as a threat to, to the sameness and security we expect. Andrew Shepard details this process of exclusion. He says this, first, we seek as a culture to eliminate unwanted others from our circle of life, either through legislation or violence. If we can't remove them, we seek to assimilate others to make them like ourselves so we don't have to live with undesired difference. If that doesn't work, we seek to dominate others, to normalize to our standards and penalize for variance. And if that doesn't work, we turn to demonization. We remove their humanity to justify any and all behavior. How do we engage culture? How do we engage people in this culture? How do we invite people to follow the real Jesus in this post-Christian city? How do we share our life, the life we've come to enjoy with Jesus, with our neighbors or our coworkers or our friends or even our families? That's the question I wanna wrestle with today. How do we do this? And I think the answer is in the life of Jesus. So if you have a Bible, go to Luke chapter 19. We're gonna look at one very familiar story. There's songs written about this story. And it's Luke chapter 19, verse one. And if you don't have a Bible, the words are gonna go on the screen or you can grab one somewhere or just download an app and always have the Bible with you. And the question is, are you reading it? So read the Bible. Luke 19 verse one, it says this, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was so short, he could not see the crowd could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached that spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to the guest of a sinner. He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now, I give half my possessions to the poor. And if I had cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. 
Oh, this is a good story. So many things here that I want to talk about, but I'm going to focus in, all right, on what, what we're talking about, the strategy of the kingdom expansion. This story is so culturally scandalous, we can't even begin to understand the significance of what's going on. I'm gonna do my best to make a couple of points about the culture. Number one, Zacchaeus was a tax collector, a tax farmer, technically. He was the head, the chief tax collectors. Tax collectors in that society were the worst of the worst of the worst. Israel was occupied by Roman, the Roman Empire. They were oppressed, brutally oppressed by the sword, and the tax collectors were Jews who sold out their countrymen. They were notoriously corrupt, and they made a living by adding a fee to Rome's fee and taxes. So if the Romans could tax 50% of your income, tax collectors could say, I'm gonna tax 75% of your income keep 25 for myself, for myself and I'm gonna have the Roman legion to collect that payment on, uh, on your door, at your doorstep. And at that time, 90% of all of Palestine was living by a day's wage. They were living off the money they made for that, from that day. They were poor and they were oppressed. Some estimate, scholars estimate that the 90% gave 90% of their income to taxes and fees from whether it be Rome, tax collectors, or temple tax. It was so corrupt. So they were hated. They were hated. You were stripped of your identity as a tax collector if you were Israel. You, Israelite. You couldn't go to the temple. You were not considered a child or a child of Abraham. You were, you were excommunicated from fellowship. Um, to be associated, your family was excommunicated unless they denounced you publicly. In that, that culture, the two lowest occupations on the moral ladder were tax collectors and prostitutes. And who does Jesus eat with regularly throughout the Gospels? tax collectors and prostitutes. And we read that and we're like, oh cool, Jesus is awesome. But in that context, we don't have a framework for tax collectors. They're not IRS agents. And because our culture is hypersexualized, they're not they wouldn't be considered prostitutes in, in my opinion. I think you need to wrap your imagination around what was going on with something like this. Imagine Jesus going to an alt-right white nationalist from Charlottesville's house. Or imagine yourself, Jesus, dining with ISIS terrorist cells in the Afghan mountains. Or a pedophile. Whatever comes up in your imagination, however disruptive that description is, that's how disruptive it was in the first century. That's what Jesus is doing in this situation. But it has also to do with what meals meant in the first century. We don't have a clue about the power of the meal or, uh, or what was called table fellowship in the first century. You see, anthropologist Mary Douglas called this boundary markers. You see, when you would have a meal with somebody in those cultures, they, boundary markers bring people together, but they also keep people out. And the meal or the table was a symbol of that. Even in our laid back kind of open-minded culture, the general rule for all of us is we have food with family and friends. And that's it. And that's true for all societies. But table fellowship was something even more significant in the first century. So here's the backstory. When Israel was dragged off into exile 400 years before Jesus, the temple was destroyed and the sacrificial system was put to an end, and the priesthood, all the priests and the Levites were put into prison. So the question for the Israelite 400 years before Jesus was how do you remain faithful to the covenant of God without Torah, without temple, without sacrifice, without a priest? 
So they had to reinvent how you would follow God as a faithful Jewish man or woman in a foreign land. And so what they said was the home is the new temple. The table is the new altar. The father is the new priest and the meal is the new sacrifice, which is amazing, wouldn't you agree? That's cool. Except then the Pharisees come around and realize that the reason the Israelites were in exile in the first place had to do with sin. So the way to ushering God's new kingdom and bring the Messiah back is to not have any sin. So what the Pharisees did as a religious movement is take the, the law dedicated to the priest and applied it for everyone and said, now we all have to live out the priesthood uh, way of living in the Torah, observe the 513 commands and add another 2,000 com- or 1,500 commands to the law. And so now you apply all of those laws to the priest to your own life and so if the table is now the altar and your home is the temple that means no Gentiles in your home that means no outcasts nobody with physical uh, sickness or ailments or issues no no um, sin could enter into your home or have table fellowship do you see what happened it's subverted unintentionally with a good intention and so for rabbis in that culture as Jesus is ministering you would never in one million years be caught dead with a tax collector in their home or in your home for what it meant New Testament scholar Scott Barchi writes this it would be difficult to overestimate the importance of table fellowship for the cultures of the Mediterranean basin in the first century of our era, mealtimes were far more than occasions for individuals to consume nourishment. Being welcomed at a table for the purpose of eating food with another person had become a ceremony richly symbolic of friendship, intimacy, and unity. Thus betrayal or unfaithfulness toward anyone with whom one had shared the table was viewed as particularly reprehensible. On the other hand, When persons were estranged, a meal invitation opened the way of reconciliation. I had the story of, um, there was a season in our church where uh, people were really upset with me for some reason, and um, a group of people, for various reasons, um, it was right after the election, and a true story, people were leaving our church because I wasn't conservative enough, and people were leaving our church because I wasn't liberal enough, and I was like in this middle, like I don't know what to tell you, I'm trying to lead you towards Jesus, and both were angry, and I'm like, I don't know any other church that's having a, literally a, a coffee meeting one after another with people who are demanding one thing and the opposite at the same time. I was like, I, I will never forget that, that sequence of meetings, but one couple, it was so fascinating, who came from a different background theologically, they, they just were open and they wanted to know about certain theological things. So I said, let's have, let's have a conversation, come to the office, let's talk about this. And their heart was so open, I'll never forget what they did. They came and they brought communion elements. And they said, I know we're different on these things, but let us just come under the confession that we believe in Jesus. And this is what binds us to, they did this, and I'll never, and the the conversation was so full of grace, the spirit was all over it, and they're still here. And I hear regularly from this person how, how amazing the season has been as they've grown and matured in their theology because somebody took a time not to give them a position on a stance, but to invite them into friendship. That's the power of the table. <clears throat> uh, One German theologian says this, in the East, even today, to invite a person to a meal was an offer of peace, trust, brotherhood, and forgiveness. Okay, so think about what Jesus is doing and think about what this scholar's saying. Sharing a table meant sharing life. In Judaism, in particular, table fellowship means fellowship before God. 
For the eating of a piece of broken bread by everyone who shares in a meal brings out the fact that they all have a share in the blessing that which the master of the house had spoken over the unbroken bread. Because whenever you, you take bread, the person breaking it blesses it, and whoever receives the bread receives the blessing. The inclusion of sinners in the community of salvation achievable in table fellowship, look at this, is the most meaningful expression of the message of the redeeming love of God. For Rabbi Jesus, meals weren't a boundary marker but a sign of God's great welcome into the kingdom. Not a way of keeping people out, but a way of welcoming and inviting people in. Joshua Jip says this, the entire ministry of Jesus is appropriately captured in the phrase, divine hospitality to a stranger and sinner. Jesus' ministry was rescuing love and welcoming, uh, showing and displaying a welcoming God. Jesus' posture was one of inclusion and embrace. He created a portal of heaven, welcoming those who have been pushed out and shunned. God's hospitality is extended to his lost, broken, needy, and often stigmatized people. This divine hospitality comes to us in the person of Jesus, the divine host who extends God's hospitality to sinners, outcasts, strangers, and thereby draws them and us into friendship with God. God's embrace of humanity into friendship with his is the ultimate form of a welcome to a stranger. In other words, if you recognize the strategy of Jesus, it's not one of many strategies. Hospitality and table fellowship was the strategy of Jesus. In Gospel of Luke, we have over 50 accounts of food being referenced and demonstrated. What Luke does is record all of these table fellowship moments as symbolic for the ministry of Jesus. Hospitality was key to extending the kingdom. This is how we have to see it as the strategy for expanding the kingdom. And we're gonna talk about why in a minute, but how incredible is this? And how much we miss what's possible through radical hospitality. We're so eager to evangelize or to bring apologetics or to see signs and wonders, but all of us have access to a table. Most of us in our church. All of us have access to sharing food. Most of us in today are gonna eat three meals. Each have an opportunity for God's grace to be extended and an ex- extension of his kingdom. In the kingdom of God, Jesus creates a culture of hospitality. I want to talk about the culture of hospitality. Notice that last line in Luke's gospel, uh, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter nineteen. He says, "The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost." That's a repeat line in the Gospel of Luke. And in an oral tradition, you would have been if you heard that phrase, you would have been lights would have been going off, bells would have been going off. You would have been reminded about another time that that line was used in another story in the Gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter seven. In Luke chapter seven, um, right before Jesus will have a meal at a a Pharisee's house where a a woman will come who was a sinner and, and pour alabaster jar perfume on his feet and wash his feet with her hair. There's this moment where he's talking to to these people about um, his ministry and he says this and I wanna point this out because it's so important about the theology of of hospitality. uh, Luke chapter seven, verse 33, it says this. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine and you say he was a demon. This is Jesus talking. The son of man, which is Jesus' favorite phrase to refer to himself, 
came, came eating and drinking. The son of man came eating and drinking and you say he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. One scholar points this out, check this out. He says this, there's a formula in the, hidden in the Gospel of Luke and it's the formula of the son of man came. It happens twice. Once is about Jesus' mission and the other is about Jesus' method. The first is the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, the mission of Jesus into the world, and what was his method of how he would go about saving and seeking and saving the lost? The Son of Man came eating and drinking. That's good news, right? Maybe I'm preaching this for myself. Lord knows I talk about Chipotle a lot and all sorts of food, and I'm, I'm trying to get some money back from my advertisement here in local Long Beach for all the food I recommend. One scholar says in, the Luke, in, in, in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. And another theologian says Jesus himself, uh, Jesus got himself killed because of the way he ate. It was so scandalous. It was so scandalous for Jesus to be engaged in, tele, uh, in table fellowship, in telephone call, in table fellowship. It was scandalous. It meant they are included. They are a part of the kingdom. There is forgiveness demonstrated and displayed that God extends blessing and favor to tax collectors, to pedophiles and prostitutes, the worst of the worst. That's how horrible, it feels unfair. But that's, that's grace. And that's the symbol he gives us. This is what he invites us. So Jesus lived in a culture where a lot of people were hostile towards him. How did he walk people into the kingdom of God? It's the same question. How do we engage in our culture? How do we invite people to follow Jesus in our post-Christian city? How do we learn to share life with our friends, our coworkers, our family members, and our neighbors? How did Jesus extend the kingdom one meal at a time? One meal at a time. The word hospitality means, it's a compound word, if you're taking notes, two words put together, and it means uh, philo and xenos. Philo means love, xenos means stranger. It's the exact opposite of xenophobia. It's the lover of stranger or foreigners. The love of a stranger, the love of a foreigner is literally what hospitality means. Let's just pause right there. The culture the kingdom brings is a love of strangers, a love of the foreigner. Henry Nouwen defined hospitality as the ability to pay attention to the guest. Rosaria Butterfield says this, and I love it, turning strangers into neighbors and neighbors into family. As followers of Jesus, to practice the way of Jesus, there are lots of commands of the 59 commands of one another's. How do we, how do we relate to one another about hospitality? I find it interesting that in the description of what it means to be a leader in the church in Titus and in 1 Timothy, Paul requires elders, bishops, deacons, and leaders of the church to practice hospitality. 
You think about what, what we, when we bring people into leadership and why people get kicked out of leadership, burnout, affairs, they mess around with money, um, they do things that they shouldn't be doing. We regu- have, you ever, have you ever seen a pastor get kicked out of leadership for not practicing hospitality? Like think about that for a minute. I was thinking about the conversations we have with house church pastors or our elders. It's commanded, Let, check this out. Romans chapter 12, verse three, practice hospitality. And that word, practice, it means to do something with intense effort and with definite purpose or goal. It can be translated, be eager to show hospitality. First Peter 4 says, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. And he shows you how that happens. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. So we have Romans, practice hospitality. Peter, practice hospitality. Check out Hebrews 13, I like this one. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. So this is like the part in whoever wrote Hebrews, we don't really know who she was, um, but whoever wrote it, I think it was Priscilla, but that's a whole other conversation. Keep on loving, look it up. Keep on loving one another. Wouldn't it be great if Hebrews really is written by Priscilla? Like the most articulate, like Jewish perspective about the gospel was written by a woman. Wouldn't, that's what we need to hear. I can't wait till we get to the new heaven and we get to meet the author of Hebrews and be like, thank you so much, holding it down. <laughs> Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Welcome in the strangers into your home, not Chick-fil-A or Chipotle, into your home. Make them feel welcome. The the reason for this is this was how the gospel spread. So when Christians would go to places and there were other Christians, you see in 1 John that John will command people to practice hospitality. Christians are coming as missionaries. This is how this thing is gonna go. When when Mark talks about, when Jesus talks about in Mark that you will have 100 times as much if you give up homes, fields, and stuff. Do you know what I'm talking about? In this present age, in the age to come, he's referring to the family of God. You having access to all the stuff that the family of God has because you're all gonna share. So if you're going to Spain and you live in Jerusalem and you need to go through Rome, you write a letter because Christians there are gonna support you because we're on the same team. It's not gonna be an Airbnb moment. It's gonna be welcome in to the church. We gotta get better at hospitality. This is the strategy for kingdom expansion. It's not church website, it's not Instagram, it's not Twitter, it is the strategy of the table and everything it represents in that culture and in our culture, teaching people how to follow Jesus one meal at a time. How we doing church? You didn't think it was gonna get tense, but it did. Love of the ordinary, oh, I think, I think what's beautiful about this is all of us have access to a table. If not, you can make one really cheap with some plywood, <laughs> or you could just sit on the floor and have a picnic. The, the, the potential is pregnant with possibility. And Rosaria Butterfield, she says, radical ordinary hospitality. Those who live it see strangers as neighbors and neighbors as family of God. 
They recoil at reducing a person to a category or a label. They see God's image reflected in the eyes of every human being on earth. Those who live out a radically ordinary hospitality see their homes not as theirs at all, but as God's gift to use for further hindrance, for, I, I have this misquoted in my, for the furtherance of the kingdom. They open doors, they seek out the underprivileged, they know that the gospel comes with the house key. Oh, I read this sermon this morning and I, I text my wife, I don't think I'm a Christian. No, I didn't text her that. <laughs> I did say something along that lines. I just said we're missing it. We're missing it. We're totally missing it. We're missing this whole strategy that Jesus has. And part of the reason, why are, we, why, are we, why are we not practicing hospitality? Some of you are amazing at this, by the way. But why are we missing it? Because most of us just invite our friends. The meals we have are our nuclear families or friends that look like us and all of those things. Some of us open house church and we, we do hospitality and I appreciate that. But a lot of us are missing this. And I think part of the reason, one of it has to do with this. The, the view of entertainment versus hospitality. See, in our culture, we think hospitality is about entertainment, and it's not entertainment. You see, entertainment is uh, about exclusion. It's about inviting the in crowd into your place. Why hospitality is about inclusion, an open table, anyone is welcomed at your table. Entertainment is about performance, it's about showing off your house or your skills or your circle of friends. It has a host and it has some guests. Hospitality is about sharing the experience. There's a blurred, uh, it blurs the lines of guests and hosts. Everyone gets to participate, everyone gets to play. It doesn't, it doesn't mean your house is perfect. Your house could have, I love what Rosario Butterfield describes in her intro. She says, if, if people come over, hospitality recognizes that everyone's part of the team and she says something like if there's laundry unfolded on the on the table the guests come in and they start folding your laundry because that's what it means to practice radically ordinary hospitality and I was like I'll take some of that (laughs) but this mindset I have to have the house clean or this mindset I don't have a good enough house or I don't I don't have the nice a nice home I don't have a big enough space I think those are all lies that the enemy has planted into our lives through the view of entertainment versus hospitality and recognize it doesn't matter. Let the dishes be piled up. It's better to have people over than not because it's the strategy of the kingdom expansion. How are we doing? If we are going to continue the life-giving, healing ministry of Jesus, we must open our hearts and lives and create environments of welcome today. Hospitality is an environment of welcome. Jesus had a remarkable ability to draw people from the most uh, culturally incompatible backgrounds into his community. Think about it. His disciples were nationalist zealots, cultural trader tax collectors, Pharisees, peasants, women, lepers, and everything in between. He created portals of grace and gave people new identities. No longer were they identified with the strict cultural category of their past sins. They were called sons and daughters of the loving father. Even Zacchaeus too was a son of Abraham. Identity is restored in an environment of welcome. His environment of welcome plus the conversion of old identities into a new identity has changed history forever. Jesus loved and accepted people for who they really were. They could drop their masks of religiosity and performance and receive unconditional love around the table. And people today, 
they're exhausted of having to perform, having their, to earn their way to God, but even right now, how people are having to earn their way into community. Cue the song. So when someone welcomes them in love, our hearts and humanity are restored by those that embrace the outsider. So we need to practice hospitality as we learn to build a culture of hospitality, cultures built through practices, through shared values, through a set of ideas and, uh, and um, uh, relational boundaries and convictions and thoughts that together as a church, there's over 600 people that come on, on Sundays. Imagine if there were over 400, 300 ha- houses open for hospitality. Open, imagine if all of us decided this is it. This is the strategy of how the kingdom's gonna expand on earth as it is in heaven, one meal at a time. Maybe not every meal, because all the introverts are like, great, that would be nuts. <laughs> Extroverts are like, finally, we can do it. Every meal and snack and second breakfast, we're gonna make a missional option. <laughs> Right, babe? (laughs) This becomes a practice. What's a practice? It's something or a spiritual discipline. It's something that's not natural for many of us. So it takes uh, intention and means and vision to make it reality. There are, are three different categories that we see in scripture that Jesus does that all can become a practice for you as a way of building strength, building your muscles of culture building. It's practicing eating and drinking intentionally. Here are the three ways. Eat and drink with people who are far from God. So as a discipline, this next month with your spouse, your roommates, say, let's pray about it, God. Who is on our heart that we wanna see to come into the kingdom? This coworker, this friend, this family member. And your strategy is not to share the gospel with a five-point illustration and you know, show the, share a YouTube. <clears throat> It's just to have them over and ask really good questions and actually listen to their answers and then ask follow-up questions and pour a second glass of wine and make sure that they they know that they're welcomed and accepted as they are and not as they should because that's a symbol of what's to come as they foretaste the heaven on earth reality in your living room or at your dining room table or whatever it is you have. Thank you so much. I love the shout out. Are you with me? Second, eat and drink with part of God's family. Do it intentionally. Do it spontaneously. Open up the life so that people are bringing their their holy moly burritos into your living room when you cooked a meal because it's better to eat together than separately. Can I get an amen? amen? And get rid of that thing, that list that you have to do before they show up. We got, it's, it's, you know what I'm talking about? Like you literally lose your salvation before, five minutes before. Have you, you know, like my wife, she's like, I just swept, I just wiped down the countertops, I just, I just sprayed the windows, I cooked the meal, I ne- I've never cooked the meal, I ordered the meal on Postmates, uh, she cooked the meal, and she comes in and she's like, oh my gosh, this house is a mess. I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> I did all these things. I pulled out the heavy Dyson and I did it, I swear. <laughs> Our, our standards of cleanliness need to go down just a little bit. And now I'm, I'm quoting in my head Leviticus, cleanliness is next to godliness. So there you go. Third, um, the invitation is to eat a meal with the Father. 
communion um, was the center of the early church. And it wasn't a cracker and juice, it was a meal. It was a full meal together because that was the image. It wasn't, we've reduced it to gluten-free crackers and grape juice, um, but Paul will have to tell the church in Corinth, guys, don't get drunk off wine when you're taking the Lord's Supper. They didn't know how to eat and drink without getting drunk in that culture, so he has to correct their abuse because it was a meal. And so when we gather together as friends, do it with Jesus, invite the Father and the Holy Spirit and the Son into the meal and recognize it's all grace. This burrito or this casserole, this poke bowl is all from Jesus. And, and do it intentionally. Those are three ways you can practice hospitality. Eat and drink with people far from God. Eat and drink with the family of God and eat and drink with the Father in heaven in ordinary life. Teach your family how to follow Jesus one meal at a time. Extend the kingdom of God one meal at a time. The call is to the table. Amen? Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit garden.church. Well